Last Sunday, I began a three-part sermon series on the subject of learning contentment. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book on contentment, defined contentment this way. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal of every condition. Many of us are prone to grow dull and ungrateful for what we have been given. We're surrounded with people and things and all kinds of blessings, but we can't see them. However, we have a very keen sense for seeing what we don't have. Ungrateful hearts often lead to discontent and to bitterness. G.K. Chesterton made a few observations about gratitude that were might help me as I was thinking through this. He says, when it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. You say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the concert and the opera and grace before the play and the pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip my pen in the ink. When we were children, we were grateful to those who filled our stockings at Christmas time. Why are we not grateful to God for filling our stockings with legs? Well... C.S. Lewis, in his dialogue in Prelandria, uh, book two in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, had this dialogue, and again, helpful as we think about contentment. What have you made me see, answered the lady. It is, it is, uh, is what you've made me see is plain as the sky, but I never saw it before. Yet is, uh, yet is happened every day. One goes into the forest to pick food, and already the thought of one fruit rather than another has grown up in one's mind. Then, may it be, one finds a different fruit and not the fruit one thought. One joy was expected and another is given, but this I had never noticed before, that the very moment of the finding there is in the mind a kind of thrusting back or setting aside the picture of the fruit you have not found is still for a moment before you. And if you wished, if it were possible to wish, you could keep it there. You could send your soul after the good you had expected instead of turning it to the good that you had got. You could refuse the real good. You could make the real fruit taste insipid by thinking of the other. Today I want to address one of the things that the Apostle Paul spoke of in the text that we read last week from Philippians 4, verses 11 through 12, where he said, For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. Whatever state I am in. And then Paul expands on this in today's text from 1 Corinthians 7. It is natural 
for people to be discontent. It's as natural to a fallen man or woman as weeds are to the soil. I had uh, hopes earlier this year, apparently not enough hopes, of a garden. And I found out, as I have before, that all you have to do to grow a crop of weeds is absolutely nothing. And anybody who saw it right now would say a big amen to that. Likewise, people don't need to be taught how to complain. When it comes to being discontent, the youngest child is ready to go almost really on day one, uh, once they enter the world. The oldest among us have often accumulated a very long list of complaints. However, if you want vegetables or flowers, you're going to have to work at it. You're going to have to cultivate and sow. Contentment, you see, is the fruit of godliness. Contentment has to be worked at. Contentment has to be learned. To not be content, and this is a critical point, one that we must not forget. We think that it's just kind of a normal thing. We're so used to it. But to not be content is to question the goodness of God. I like the fact that Pastor Volkov, our good friend, and many others frequently say as as really a kind of mantra, God is always good. This is a good reminder. And by repeating it often, it helps get it into our bones. The first temptation in history was the temptation to discontentment. God withheld only one tree from Adam and Eve to test their obedience. So paradise was full of yeses, but only one no. You know, a toy that has been forgotten and seldom played with by a child suddenly becomes the most desired object in the world when that child is told they can't have it because some other child is playing with it. And Satan sowed the seeds of discontent in Eve's heart. She was discontent with two things. She was discontent, apparently, with her possessions. I mean, after all, all she had was paradise. And she was discontent with her position. She wanted to be God. And so, likewise, Satan tried the same strategy with Jesus in the wilderness. He sought to make Jesus discontent with his lack of food or possessions. And he sought to make Jesus discontent with his position. Likewise, you and I are continually tempted to become discontent with both our possessions and our positions or our state, whatever circumstances we're in. And so today I want to focus on that problem of our tendency to be discontent with our position. Next Sunday we'll deal with our discontent with our possessions. By position I mean our perhaps our place in society or our place in the church or our place in the family, or just simply our circumstances in general. Our position often speaks of who we are and what we are in these various spheres. So this could involve our state or our place in the family, whether I'm a husband or a wife, father, mother, child, sibling, married, unmarried. This can involve our job, our work, our calling, or our place in the church, the gifts that we have or don't have. Or it might involve our circumstances, young or old, rich or poor, healthy or sick, and so forth. 
we should notice and remember five principles from our Philippians passage. And we're going to read it again here in a moment. But these are the points I want to make today. First, our position, whatever it is, is the Lord's assignment. Second, our position carries with it, whatever the position is, a primary responsibility. And third, our position should not overly concern us. Fourth, our position may possibly be improved. And fifth, our position must be faithfully performed. So let's read again verses 17 through 22 here uh, as we from uh, our opening text. And uh, let's take a look then at 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 17 through 22. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordained in all the churches, was anyone called while circumcised, let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised, let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can, be made free. Rather, use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Now the word here, as we open up, it says God has distributed to each one. The word distributed means division or to divide and we might think of the idea of the division of labor so god distributes gifts he he puts us in various positions to do various jobs and together as the body of christ we do all kinds of things but we can't do everything we might think of someone receiving a military assignment which would involve a particular location a particular rank and particular task So our assignment from the Lord involves all of those things. Our position in the Lord's, uh, our position is the Lord's distribution, and that may very well change and usually does over time. And there are very few of us who would not like to improve or change our positions, at least from time to time. But we are where we are, and we are what we are, and we are who we are, according to God's sovereign good pleasure. That's why when we're discontent, we're really discontent with God. This doesn't mean we can ever, that we can never change or improve our position, and we'll say more about that in a moment. However, to grumble over our position uh, now, our, our current situation, is again to question God's wisdom for our lives. God will promote us if and when He thinks we need promoting. And provided that we avail ourselves of the proper means that may lead to our promotion. But the kingdom of God will not fail simply because we're not leading the way. I have said to many pastors, many young men, many wannabe pastors, and I have said to myself, the kingdom of God will be just fine if I never preach again. It is a privilege to serve where God's called us. God doesn't need us, and He certainly doesn't need me. I think it's helpful to remember 
a statement. I was looking up, I remembered a quote, and I wasn't sure of the source on it, but the, uh, there's a, somebody who does research on quotes, and they found that the first reference to this was in 1909 in a newspaper in Oklahoma. And here's, here's how the context. It says, young man, as you preambulate down the pathway of life toward an unavoidable bald head bordered with gray hairs, it would be well to bear in mind that the cemeteries are full of men this world could not get along without. And note the fact that things move along after each funeral procession at about the same pace they went before. So that's a a good thing to remind us of our position overall in the big picture, right? So God's unerring sovereign wisdom and love puts each of us where he wants us, and and there has been no mistake. If you had a higher position than you have, you might not have as much of Christ as you have. Remember, he hasn't called many mighty or many noble. Some small ships can pass through waters that larger ones would run aground. What if you'd have been rich? Where would you be right now? What if you'd have been better looking or smarter? Where would you be right now? You don't know the answer to that, do you? But God does. Had any other position been better for you than the one you're in, do you think God could have or would have put you there? You're where you are because God has determined that at this time it is the most effective means for maturing you for every good work. Notice also the Lord's distribution is, according to our text, to each one. It's very particular. This passage isn't simply referring to some general position of all Christians, but rather to the particular assignments that God gives to us as individuals. These assigned positions cover two broad areas. First, our spiritual positions. So he talks about those who are circumcised, those who are uncircumcised. So in other words, we could put it this way, we all have various backgrounds, some from Christian homes, some from ungodly backgrounds, some were saved while they were young, some were older, and you may be tempted to be discontent with your background. I have seen some who try to cover up who they are, and I've seen others who try to enhance who they are. But that's part of God's working in your life. And second, there are our vocational positions. In verse 21, he talks about those who are slaves. In verse 22, the freedman. Some are employees, some are bosses. Some have good jobs, some have hard jobs, some have dirty jobs. But Paul's direction to all the saints in all the churches is that each person is to remain in their assigned position As the Lord has called each, so let him walk. Let each man remain. Again, we're going to see an exception here in a moment, but that's the baseline. Second, our position then carries a primary responsibility. Regardless of what position we've been assigned by God, it doesn't matter. Obedience or faithfulness to God is ultimately what matters. God is far more concerned with your holiness than he is your happiness. If you become holy, you'll be happy. And if you try to become happy without being holy, you'll become miserable. 
James and John, along with their mother, were very concerned to have prominent positions in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. And then Jesus said, but many who are first will be last and the last first. You see, it's easy to fall into the trap of discontentment with our positions. Some of us are like Diotrophes, who said in Third John 9, I wrote to the church, but Diotrophes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. But you see, God, we're told in the Bible, exalts the humble. And he humbles the proud. He takes far more pleasure in an obedient slave than he does a grumbling king. Think about Joseph. How did Joseph, what position was he in for a good part of his life, particularly as a young man? Well, he was sold into slavery. He was treated unjustly. Then he gets a job in Potiphar's house. And he's a faithful servant there, but he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He's arrested. He's falsely unjustly convicted and sent to prison. And while he's in prison, he's forgotten. Well, by a lot of people, but not by God. In every one of those places, the Bible tells us that the Lord was with him. So wherever he was, whether he was in Potiphar's house or in prison, he seemed to rise to the top because he was faithful in whatever position God put him in. Remember, when Paul's writing in Philippians, he's writing from prison himself when he's talking about learning contentment. What did God do with Joseph? What do we, we know the end of the story, right? When his brothers are there after his father's died, he said, you, my brothers, intended this for evil, but God intended it. What was it? The whole story, including being a servant in Potiphar's house and the injustice and going to prison and being forgotten, that was part of it before he gets elevated to the place that the Bible describes as being a father to Pharaoh. That's how that story ended. God exalted. And we have, we see that happen over and over in the Bible. It takes a mature man or woman of grace to lay down your honors as willingly as you took them up. To cheerfully submit to Christ when He humbles you as you did when He exalted you. To glorify Christ by shame and reproach as well as by honor, the honor and esteem of other people. Third, our position must not overly concern us. We are prone to wonder what God will do without us. We may falsely assume that we deserve more, or we may confuse our own discontent with the idea that God must want us to do something else. I'm unhappy. Surely God doesn't want me to be unhappy. Therefore, He must be calling me to do something else. In fact, He might just be calling you to learn to trust His love and wisdom before He will trust you with something else. Are you going to be faithful here, today, in these little things first? 
Do you think like the prosperity gospel people that God wants all Christians to hold high positions or just you? Do you think you would be content if you had a better position? A better house? Better things? Well, don't fool yourself. Discontent can sit on a throne or a stump. A person's discontent is in their heart, not in their position or state. Discontent stems from the fact that someone thinks God has made a mistake and that they really deserve to have much more. If I could just have that position, Lord, then I would be content. But you see, people are not that easily satisfied with honor. If they get an ovation, then they want a standing ovation, and they want another ovation. The lust for honor can never be satisfied. Fourth, our position may be improved. May, not, it's not a guarantee. You might be somewhat discouraged at this point. You, you mean I'm stuck with this job or this position that I hate and I can't do anything about it? I just have to grin and bear it? Maybe, but maybe not. If, Paul says, you are able to improve your position, then do so. But the following principles must be followed. Again, verse 21, but if you can be made free, rather use it. First, you must be able. That implies skills. Availing yourself of the means of advancement, things like study and practice and hard work, having the gifts and the skills that it takes to advance. So are you getting yourself in a position so that you are able to change your position? Taking that extra class, doing that extra work, gaining those extra skills? That may require some self-sacrifice on your part to get there. This implies also opportunity, that is, providence. It doesn't matter if you have the skills if there are no jobs available in that area of work. So God has to open up that opportunity as well. Second, you may not neglect any of your God-given responsibilities in order to obtain your new position. Uh, Marinelle and I were talking in the car on the way, and I've been continuing to think about this a bit. Now, what's the difference between ambition and idolatry? You should be driven. You should work hard. You should be uh, trying to become the best you can be at whatever God's calling you to, but not at the expense of your family. How many famous people do we know who are, you know, the great musicians, great artists, great this, great that, but then when you find out that they are on their fourth marriage and their kids don't speak to them, and their life's a mess. They, they gave it all away in order to achieve this one thing. You may not do that. God doesn't really care if you're famous or not. He doesn't really care if you're rich or not. He cares about us, His people, that we are faithful to Him. So we cannot sacrifice all that. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? You have family responsibilities, you have church responsibilities. So yes, you should do your work and occupy your position, but always remain faithful to God. 
so faithful to God in general, no violation of his word is permissible, even if it means you don't get the job or you don't get the promotion. I know lots of folks who've taken promotions and never asked the question about whether there was a faithful church wherever they were moving to to take the promotion. That was way down the list of priorities for them. The job, oh, that, that position, that's important. The faithfulness to God is what needs to be at the very top of the list. So to summarize, you may change positions only if you have the ability, the opportunity, and if you can maintain all your God-given responsibilities. Two out of three isn't good enough. These are the minimum standards. It is good for Christians to, again, have holy ambition, but not selfish ambition. And so whatever we do is to be done to the Lord. Man's chief end is to glorify God. Christians should be the best at what they do. And this might naturally lead to better positions, but it might not. Again, Joseph is a good example of that. God desires that there be excellent Christian workers in every area of life. If you've been given a shovel and you've been called to dig a ditch, dig an excellent ditch. Our primary responsibility then is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Fifth, our position must be faithfully performed. We're faithful to God, but then in the performing of the task itself, whatever position we're given We are to be faithful there. We were bought with a price. We're not our own. The issue is not what do I want out of life, but what does God want to do with me? Your desires become secondary, became secondary when you said, I want to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Christ. As God has assigned Christians to a variety of places and positions to be salt and light, You know why? Because there are lost people and dark places in all kinds of positions. Because His kingdom fills the whole earth. You remember the little servant girl in the story of Naaman? Found in 2 Kings chapter 5. I'll read read from 2 Kings 5, 2-4. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife and she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. So she was apparently a good worker since she seemed to have the ear of her masters. She didn't hold an important position in the eyes of men, but she was faithful to God and she testified to Naaman concerning the power of God. Regardless of our position in life, we are accountable to God. It's Him alone that we must please, not other men and not even ourselves. Ephesians chapter 6, 5 through 9. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, 
with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free, and you masters do the same things to them, giving, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. We must remain beside God in our positions. Faithfulness in any position is valued by Christ, and He has promised not to ever leave us or forsake us. To remain with God means resting in and remaining at God's side in peace and in contentment. Our comfort and happiness depend on what we are in Christ, not on what we are in the world. Whether we are in what we perceive to be a good position or a bad position does not relieve us of our duties as Christians, nor does it keep us from the privileges that we have in Christ. So, let me just wrap this up. Uh, Review. It is natural to be discontent. That's the problem. We're sinners. That's why it's natural. Therefore, we must cultivate the Christian flower of contentment For to not be content is to question the goodness of God. We will be content if we remember that our position is the Lord's assignment. It is His sovereign good pleasure for every individual and in every area of life. Number two, our position carries a primary responsibility because regardless of our position, the only thing that really matters is our duty toward God. Third, our position must not overly concern us. We serve Him no matter where we are. Our position is His concern. Fourth, our position may be improved if we are able and if we are obedient to God. And fifth, our position must be faithfully performed because we were bought with a price. We're not our own. We belong to God and we must remain beside God wherever He has called us. So, it's like so many other things. It starts with attitude. Attitude's another word for perspective. How do you look at it? How do you look at where you are right now? Start praying. Lord, first of all, work in me that I'll learn to be content right where I am. And, Lord, by the way, I would like to be somewhere else. Show me what I need to do. How could I do this? Maybe I could work harder. Maybe I should be a better employee. Maybe I should be faithful to you, Lord. Maybe you're waiting for that, maybe, you know, in tithing and praying and serving and obedience to you, then you'll start blessing me. That's what the Bible says, right? Covenant faithfulness, covenant blessings. Lord, use me where I am. I can't see the end from the beginning, but you can. So take my position and use me for the people that are around me right there to show them Christ and to love them. And in all that, God will very likely be moving you to new positions and new opportunities and using you in in ways you can't imagine. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we humbly pray that you would work in us joy and contentment in the various places and states in which you have sovereignly placed us. We uh, We may be enabled, may we be enabled by your grace to use all these situations for your glory and our good. Help us not to chafe 
under hard providences and teach us to give thanks in and for all things. May we learn how to be abased and how to abound everywhere and in all things. And now, Lord, we ask you to continue your mercies toward us that all the world may know that you are our Savior and mighty Deliverer. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. The Bible never promises that we will not face hard times or difficult situations, but it does promise God's strength and grace during these times. The Apostle Paul found the secret of, to, life, to a life of peace and contentment in troubled times. As we have seen, he shares the secret of being content. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian born in 1892. I know most of you are familiar with her story. She was the daughter of a watchmaker, a trade that she also learned. Corrie never married, and she lived in the family home throughout her adult life. The family lived a humble existence, but kept an open-door policy for anyone who was in need. They also had a strong heart for the Jews and prayed for them faithfully each week. During World War II, the Ten Boom family found that they had become a natural contact for Jews who were seeking refuge, and remarkably, the extensive connections made through their watchmaking business enabled the Ten Booms to provide a safe house and ration cards for more than 800 Jews. In a secret room in their own home, they also hid Jews and other families. However... Betrayed in 1944 to the Gestapo, the Ten Boom family were arrested and sent to prison in Holland where Corey's father died. Corey and her beloved sister Betsy were later sent to Ravensbrück, a German concentration camp for women, where they endured unimaginably horrific conditions that led to Betsy's death. Even here, Corey and Betsy longed to share the gospel with their fellow prisoners and held secret Bible studies, encouraging other Christians among them uh, by leading many others to know the Lord. Hard circumstances were used by God to accomplish great things. Let me say that again. Hard circumstances were used by God to accomplish great things. Corey Ten Boom defined worry as, quote, a cycle of ineffective thoughts whirling around a center of fear. Worry can wreck our lives. Some of our worries, like Paul's, are real, and some are illusory. But in either case, a life weighed down by worry and discontent is not really living. We come to the table of the Lord who suffered for our sakes. And while he was suffering, even on the cross, considered it all joy. He saw that through that suffering, through those hard circumstances, to put it mildly, he saw the other side, that God was at work even in the cross. And that we sit here as the object of that love. Likewise, we have joined with him and share in his sufferings and difficulties. And while we can't always see the end from the beginning in the specific sense. We can see the end from the beginning in the big sense. We know. We know. 
Not many things we know, but we know that God is working all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So we come to the Lord's table now to remember those kinds of things, to remember what He's done for us and what He's doing in us and through us, even in the positions that He's put us in right now. So let us come and celebrate this gift from the Lord. Father, we pray for the peace of our city and nation, that you would spare her for the sake of your kingdom, that you would establish righteousness and justice in the land, and that you would use us and our children to advance this cause. Please raise up faithful servants who will go and will boldly proclaim your gospel. We pray that the outward words we heard with our ears this day may, through your grace, be grafted to our hearts, that they might bring forth in us fruit of your grace, to the honor and praise of your name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, bless now our rest and our rejoicing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, amen.